So when yeah, I was a kid, there was a commercial on TV for uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and they one one someone would be walking along, and they'd have a bar of chocolate, and the other person would have uh, a jar of uh, they'd have a bar of chocolate and a jar of peanut butter, and they'd run into each other, and the chocolate would get into the peanut butter, and they'd say, "Your chocolate is my is in my peanut butter," and the other one would say, "Your peanut butter is in my chocolate." I feel as though when you talk about materialism the way you are, that your idealism gets into your materialism. I see your point, yes. But, uh, but first, uh, I don't see how you can oppose here materialism and idealism, idealism, because I think exactly the same thing can also be said for the ideal universe. Mm-hmm. It's in the same way constructed, it has a structure, and it's chaotic. And that's what I think Hegel enables us to think. In some sense, the structure of chaos itself, how order evolves out of chaos. Let, n- never forget, now we are, I hope we are not boring our public too much, <laughs> now we are at a, a high uh, abstract conceptual level, but yeah. never forget that Hegel does not begin his logic with God or supreme idea or whatever. But with the notion of being, it is pure chaotic multiplicity. And out of this totally flat chaotic multiplicity, that's the point of his logic, some kind of structure gradually emerges. But if I may say another thing, where I am disturbed by this idea of materialism in the sense of our human mind, by definition, because of our genetic evolutionary limitations, cannot understand itself. This is an old argument. You find it with Chomsky, Malkin, but you also incidentally find it with Steven Pinker. And And Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson makes the same argument. But I think I have a good uh, counterpoint here, a very simple one. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Steven Pinker, uh, in... I forgot where it's quoted, where I refer to him in one of my big fat books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steven Pinker gives this example. We cannot understand how our mind works for the same reason that, I think he uses it, maybe I'm wrong, a rabbit cannot understand differential calculus. Simply, rabbit's mind, brain, whatever, I don't know how his self-awareness functions, didn't need this for evolutionary reasons for survival and so on. It's not part of rabbit's life world. So, of course, it cannot understand it. And Pinker's argumentation is, it's the same for us. Our mind developed for work, instrumental reasoning, or for intersubjectivity, seduction, cooperation, and so on and so on, not for understanding itself. So, it's a simple evolutionary explanation. It was not need that it's not the focus of our mind to understand it. Right. I find this parallel totally misleading because, you know, a rabbit also does not care, worry about differential calculus. It's totally outside its domain. While isn't it mysterious that we humanity, as far as we know, from the very beginning, even before there were sciences, at least in the modern sense, are asking ourselves impossible questions, questions that we, genetically, evolutionary, whatever, are unable to properly understand. So 
now I'm making my usual Hegelian trick. Of course, there are questions that we cannot answer. But why then are we, in contrast to animals or whoever, answering them all the time? Why are we precisely obsessed with impossible questions? Why do we need a mystery? Because for rabbit, there are, in some sense, no mysteries. Okay, unexpected thing, things can happen for a rabbit. Mm-hmm. Some animal jumps on him, uh, a human, uh, a gun shot by a human being kills him. But these are not, in a proper human sense, a mystery. Like mysteries for us, mystery of the mm-hmm. universe, mystery of love, and so on, and so on. So I would say, in a little bit more subtle way, that it's not simply that we cannot understand human mind, uh, but that uh, this not understanding is, in the strongest possible sense, part of the positive definition of the human mind. Mm-hmm. Human mind means, this is what I put it in my Lacanian jargon, that it emerges out of its own impossibility. Even all that it's dealing with impossible dilemmas, problems, even if you look historically, it's interesting to see how uh, it was not that first we are dealing with facts, science, and so on, and then we start to speculate. No, we first start to speculate. Right. Uh, Cosmology, what is the nature of the stars, blah, blah. And then gradually, as a secondary effect of this, positive sciences uh, emerge. And it's a good question. Here I'm not against Chomsky. Maybe he would even agree with it. It's a good question to what extent, although there is no... Can I... I I want to interject here. Interrupt me. I want to go... This is a tangent, but it's just a sort of a... I want you to speculate on, like, an alternative history. If Hegel and Kant had debated... Do you think that Kant would have called Hegel a charlatan? Do you think they would have been able to... Absolutely. He already did it, not with Hegel, but the first conflict was the passage from Kant to Fichte. Mm -hmm. And Kant, okay, he didn't use the term charlatan, but more or less something similar. But uh, uh, again, what is crucial here is that... uh, That's why I'm so obsessed about this, and in all my last books... I agree with my critics here. I'm struggling with the same problem. I'm rewriting the same book. What does Hegel with Kant? Hegel is not a naive idealist who says, uh, uh, who says, oh, now I know the last mystery of the universe or whatever. Now I know it, the thing itself, and so on and so on. Right. No, he- what Hegel does is just, he sees, he accepts, the Kantian fundamental, let's call it impossibility. We cannot know the thing in itself and all that. Mm-hmm. He just claims that this structure is, if I may use naive terms, inscribed into reality itself. Right. But reality itself is structured through constitutive impossibilities, absentials, and so on and so on. It's a very complex topic. You know, here... Unfortunately, to my, unfortunately for my detractors, I'm not bluffing here. I know very well. I'm saying. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the this is the Hegelian speculative moment. That's why I think 
uh, Hegel is not uh, a crazy, Hegel is for me, this may sound shocking, a very modest philosopher. He is not saying, I know everything, there are no mysteries, I'm reading the mind of God, and so on and so on. What, what Hegel is just very attentive to is how, uh, how uh, Hegel is, to cut a long story short, Hegel, and this brings us to your first question, uh, 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 correlationism, the thinking itself, yeah. and yeah. so on and so on. Hegel is not saying there are no things in themselves, everything emerges through our subjectivity and so on. But what Hegel is saying is that this Kantian opposition between phenomena and the thinking itself is, and it's clear if you read Kant closely, it's absolutely immanent to phenomena in the sense that uh, the thing in itself is something that appears as such in our phenomenal experience. I experience that there is something out there which is out of my grasp. What I, I, what I want to do... Sorry, just to finish, yeah. because this is a crucial point. Uh, uh, Hegel's point would have been, there is no mystery in Nature, you know, as I always repeat it, okay, there are mysteries in the sense that we don't know. But uh, nature, you know, usually the problem, the Kantian problem is this is how things appear to us. Who knows? We cannot know how they are in themselves. Right. Hegel's, Hegel, as you probably know, I repeat this point all the time, Hegel turns around this enigma. He said, things are. So what? They, are, they stupidly exist out there. The big enigma is not, can we step out of our uh, phenomenal experience and see how things are in themselves? The big problem is, why do things appear? How can, in the middle of positive being, reality, something like appearance arise? Which is why, in very precise terms, Hegel always celebrates the notions of fiction, appearance, for example, he says, Hegel, in the famous passage in his uh, Forward to Phenomenology, that, uh, that the greatest strength of human spirit is the ability to tear apart what is in reality always together, to abstract things, to break the natural unity, and so on and so on, which means to introduce appearances. And that's why even I had recently in London something that may attract our listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a debate on sexuality, you know. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, are we aware how our basic, at least for most of us, there are special cases of perversion. I will not enter into that. But what a kind of a violent force of abstraction does sexual experience involved. Look, I'm with my lover of whatever sex, blah, blah. Mm. I hold him, her, it naked in my arms. I explore it. But if sexuality is to work, I have to abstract from so many things. Right. You know, this. my old example already from medieval times, if you were too much obsessed with sexuality, they tell you, just imagine what is one inch beneath the skin of vagina or penis. 
it's dirty, glands, the penis can smell of urine, and so on and yeah, so yeah. on. Yeah. Once you're in sexuality, you have to abstract all this. And I claim this brutal abstraction in the sense that the libidinal object is always an appearance. Appearance in the sense that you abstract a whole... You, when you are holding your lover in your hand, you abstract all the bodily details or whatever biological details. Yeah. It, it's a very reductive experience. Yeah. That's what Hegel celebrates. It's precisely, for Hegel, the greatest strength of humanity is precisely, it sounds paradoxical, but it is uh, this unique ability to, to fall into an illusion, to take an illusion seriously. It's not the opposite. It's not reality. Animals can deal with reality, no problem. We humans are ready to risk our life yeah, yeah. I want to reframe this a little bit, but I, I, I mean, I'm not dis- I don't disagree with what you're saying. I just want to clarify it because when you say this, it's what in psychoanalysis we call verneinung, denegation. So <laughs> kill me directly. <laughs> I just want to reframe it because uh, what happens is I feel like I understand what you're saying, but then these problems remain. So, for instance, Which, tell me, be precise. Okay, I'll tell you. For me, I still am wondering to what degree. What we take to be reality or the objective world relies on our own subjectivity and vice it does, versa. It does what we in you know, here. Let me, let me uh, just let me finish the question. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. go on. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah. So the question is I'll put it like to you like this. When I imagine um, the world, I, I, I had an experience when uh, a few years ago when I was a younger man, when my uncle died. Uh, I realized that uh, it was a little bit strange that the world was going on without him because he was uh, uh, that that somehow some part of the world had, had disappeared. And then I imagined, well, what if I was gone? And I th- thought, well, the whole world would be gone. Right. This is our dilemma. But then you want to believe in a world outside of yourself. My difficulty at this point in the interview is this one. If the objective, contingent, chaotic world does appear to us, and I agree with Zizek that it does then isn't this material world, in a Kantian sense, a category of our perception? If this is so, then haven't we embraced idealism? Anyhow, this is what is bothering me at this point in the interview, and I try to ask Zizek about it by referencing the notion of solipsism. I'm grasping at this issue of the reality of our subjectivity, the way that ontologizing the split between the objective and the subjective or the idea that reality is incomplete in itself, may lead us to idealism. I'm trying to state this difficulty as baldly as possible, and I think Zizek picks up on what I'm driving at. And you talk about this in terms of the transcendent horizon or the uh, transcendent... Yeah, but here I would have been much more Go not ahead. in a traditional sense, but nonetheless materialist and Marxist. Yeah. If I, in the sense that, you know, it's not our isolated consciousness. Right. It is uh, something that is formed through collective symbolic interaction, through collective practice, and so on and so on. This is how I read Lukács, George Lukács' famous statement that yeah. nature is a historical category. He was not a subjective idealist. Right. His point was only that 
whenever we imagine nature, and precisely the way you mentioned it now, as if I disappear, what remains, and so on, mm -hmm. that is always a historical product. It's overdetermined by our historical practice. And you can show it in a triumphant way if you look at the history of natural sciences. Mm -hmm. We know the story. It's in very rough terms. In medieval times, me till even in Renaissance still, meaning was part of reality. Reality was perceived as something which has, even if it's chaotic meaning, but some type of deeper meaning inscribed into it. It's only with modernity, after Renaissance, Descartes and so on, that this clear opposition emerged. Reality is out there. Pascal wrote about this vast, silent universe, endless, uh, uh, no meaning in it. And meaning is something that we humans uh, uh, bestow on it. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying that this is then this notion of nature as meaningless, run by some abstract mecha mechanisms, natural laws. This is a typical modern phenomenon. Now, now comes my point. Okay. I am not saying, I am not saying that so we cannot step out of our human, collective human universe. I'm just saying that the way is not to try to abstract from ourselves and to say, okay, this notion in science still betrays human influence touch. Let's try to abstract from it and then you get some totally abstract notion and so on and so on. No. All, you can show it pretty convincingly that all natural scientific basic visions of reality are socially overdetermined. Now, but now I repeat it. I'm not saying that this means that they are simply not true, that they are our collective idealist dream, and mm, so on. Right. All I'm saying is that if you want to ask radically the question, so how are things in themselves, do not ask the question in this way, and that's for me the limit of uh, correlationism. This is where, as you put it in one of your questions, mm -hmm. uh, 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 correlationists like Kant and uh, Graham Harman and other uh, 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 new uh, realists, speculative mm. realists, yeah. uh, they share this presupposition. We are here, reality is out there. The mm. point is, can we get at it or not? I, I reject this alternative, not in some stupid Hegelian way. Everything is created by our mind and so on and so on. Right. But I think that... Uh, that uh, the true problem is not how is reality without us, but how we are part of reality. And I don't mean this as an empirical question. In the, sorry, I don't mean this as an evolutionary question. How did human mind right. emerge out of... I mean it in, in a more radical sense, like how could something like self-awareness, like this very transcendental horizon and so on, how could this have happened in reality, in what we vaguely can call objective reality? So there, in a more perverted sense, I agree with those mysterians or whatever you call them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I would say that mystery is not out there. 
You try to erase yourself from the picture and then the imagine reality in itself how it is. This is typical human procedure because the whole image is already structured through the paradoxes of your mind and so on and so on. The problem is the old problem of German idealism. How reality, if we vaguely use this term for technical reasons, I prefer the Lacanian notion of the real, how the real is structured so that something like human consciousness, something like our symbolic universe of illusions and so on, can emerge in it. The mystery is here. The, the mystery, the true mystery is not reality in itself. The true mystery is ourselves. How are we part of reality? I, I feel like there's two ways to uh, understand what you're saying. There's the, yes. we, could, we can understand it as you asking, how is it, from the perspective of the natural sciences, how is it that the world that we take to be the physical universe could be such that subjectivity could arise in it? There's that question. And then there's a question. Yeah, how- I know. This is the so-called soft anthropic principle. Right. You are not. The strong version is, I, of course, we all reject it. The strong version is uh, that uh, that the world was created to enable the rise of consciousness. But there's a second way to take the same, the same yeah. point that you're making, which yeah. is this, which is how is the social world, where we already are including ourselves in it, yeah. such that we understand ourselves as we are? That's another way to, to, as we understand ourselves. In other words, we understand ourselves, say, as liberal bourgeois subjects, or we understand ourselves yeah, yeah. as whatever. So there are two different uh, kinds I of... I agree with you, but I would nonetheless like to add something. Okay. First, this transcendental question for me is not the ultimate horizon so that we can say, uh, so that we can simply say, Whatever we are saying, it's overdetermined by our symbolic horizon or whatever. We cannot step out of it. I'm right. only saying that uh, that uh, to step out of it is means not to step out of ourselves, but again to try to conceptualize. Maybe it's an impossible task. What kind of a gap do we humans introduce into nature? And, here I come to your point, I think so, and how should the nature be structured in itself, let's say, so that such a gap is possible. Here comes my, to simplify for my readers, Hmm. my fascination with quantum physics, because what I find so beautiful in quantum physics is that in our usual understanding of the world, where we oppose human mind and reality, we see many things as specific to human, like reality is flat, stupid, it happens or not, in human mind. We can make experiments, we can deal with alternate realities, we can change things retroactively, of course, only counterfactually, the symbolic level, and so on and so on. But in some sense, the the reason of my mega fascination with quantum physics is that it shows how features that we usually identify with the functioning of human spirit are in a subtly different way. I'm not saying everything is in spirit, but 
in some subtle way are already in natural reality at its most elementary level. That would be the limit of my uh, speculation. Topics like, you know, uh, superposition, retroactively changing the past, you know, all those mystery of quantum experiments. Now, yeah. The, the most beautiful point of them is that it's not only, and quantum physics, I'm well aware, is precisely not some stupid subjectivism where we yeah, yeah. observers create reality and so on. Yeah. But the most subtle paradox emerges there where not only something is established in its positive being as part of our reality only through measurement, but that this works also retroactively, so that through measurement you determine what already happened. Now, what I find, again, so fascinating here is that we think that this happens only in our human mind. As I, you, you must mm. know, I always uh, quote T.S. Eliot, who said, with every new work of art, the entire past history of art is changed. Of course, we don't take this, we shouldn't take this in a brutal material sense, like uh, we are changing the past factually. Right. No, but uh, changing it counterfactually, acquires a different meaning, and so on and so on. And again, what I found so fascinating is that, is that something along these lines, but not the same as in human mind, already happens at the most elementary level of reality described by quantum physics. There's Why is this important? Because to return back to Chomsky's question, yeah. this means that uh, if we follow, no, no, no relativity theory, but in quantum physics and so on and so on, we can see that the way they describe reality, it has nothing to do with our common sense notion of reality as, you know, pieces of matter moving in linear uh, time, space, and so on and so on. It's something much more paradoxical and so on. And this would have been, for me, true materialism. Do you think Sorry. that... Do, do you think that um if let's say that we changed uh, the horizon of our being politically, in other words, let's say there was a revolution, we have socialism, uh, we live in a completely different kind of society, would that change the way we understand the kinds of facts that we're, we've uh, already uh, found Absolutely. in the natural it's sciences? It's already happening. Yeah, it's already happening. There are good, although I'm not at the utmost a historicist. I think that every historicism is ultimately self-contradictory in the sense that it uh, it has a certain meta-theory implied into it which itself cannot be historicized. Let me give you an example. This is my old problem with somebody whom I otherwise appreciate. He is a great mind, Judith Butler. You know, he, he is an anti-essentialist. We don't have fixed uh, sexual identities, biologically or theologically determined. Our gender identities, gender is not the same as sex, but let's drop it now. I, I, our gender identities are performatively enacted, contingent, through practice, through repetition, and so on, and so on. Okay, my simple question for her is, is this dynamic, performative vision of our gender identities. Is this itself a historical phenomenon 
That's how we experience ourselves in today, postmodern global capitalist universe. Or can we say in some sense that, to be slightly but benevolently ironic, when, when the stone men seduced each other and whatever they did as their sexual activity, they were already performatively constructing their identity and so on and so on. If, if you adopt the, the and whichever way you answer, I think you are in the deadlock. If you claim, no, this is our specific vision today, then what will you say then? That once essentialism was true, only today it's not. If you, only to, today it's not or not. If you say uh, essentialism was never true, then you find yourself in a very strange predicament, which is idealist in the worst sense, I think. Because then you have to claim that we, in a very primitive, historicist way, that something is universally true, sex, gender, identity were always uh, performatively constructed in a contingent way, but today we are in a privileged position to know this. So again, what interests me uh, with all historicists is that they are never fully historicist. The very structure of historicity is something that they have to presuppose as an a priori. I don't think we quite resolved the question of idealism, but I do think that I ended up siding with Zizek here against myself. If I try to imagine what Zizek is getting at, I think of Ryan Reynolds in the movie The Nines, which is a movie I mentioned in the last video I made. I want to explain how the solipsistic ego becomes an abstract and alienated substance in a more accessible way by taking up the dialectics of Ryan Reynolds in the 2007 film, The Nines. In the movie, The Nines, Reynolds plays three characters that are really one character. He plays a man who's not really a man at all, but some kind of god. In the film, Reynolds slowly realizes that the world he's in is a world of his own creation, a world that he is ultimately responsible for, but also a world that, since it is his creation, isn't real. Once the realization fully sets in, what happens is that a new world, a divine world filled with gods, is revealed to him. What Zizek is asking me to consider is that this movie, The Nines, could be made just like it is, but at the end, Reynolds wouldn't be proven out to be a god and there would be no divine realm. That is, what if the world is incomplete? What if we're all responsible for our, our own phenomenal world, but there is no organic substrate? The truth of the nines from Zizek's perspective isn't this idea of the divine realm that emerges in a new age way at the end, but the dissolution of reality. The mystery in our own experience of our own being in nature is what Zizek is driving at. I grok this, but I don't fully understand it. When it comes to Zizek's point on historicism, though, I think I do understand. He was arguing that either the cavemen were determined by their essence, and somehow we are not determined by our essence, or the cavemen's essence was their orientation towards performing gender roles or creating gender, but they didn't know this, 
and today we do know it. In both cases, there is a kind of idealism. One is the idealism that supports a natural essence creating natural genders, and the other is an essence of our creative capacity to perform new genders. This second choice would mean that we are historically situated in a privileged position to know our essence, whereas our caveman ancestors were not. As a Marxist, I'm ready to embrace this second form of idealism because I think capitalism creates the conditions wherein we are in a privileged position to take rational charge of the social relations that set up our political economic reality. The very structure of historicity is something that they have to presuppose as an a priori. It's obvious with Marx and Marxism. For there, the process which determines or overdetermines the change from one to another notion of reality is ultimately the change in collective practice, collective labor process, and so on. Right. For Heidegger, it's different, and so on, and so on. So, again, I am not a, a radical historicist. I am, to put it very naively, in search of the absolute. I don't think that radical historicism works as a position. Well, Sorry, when, when, what, if the, what if the absolute is the um, way in which a subject uh, interacts with and transforms the objective world? The, the, why, That's why? nice to say, but do you know that all the terms that you used now are already so heavily historically overdetermined? What do you mean by objective world? Do you mean it in modern sense? Do you mean it in a more medieval sense and so on? Is this objective world the world of natural sciences? Well, the, the world you have to change in order to find something to eat. The world that you have to change in order to get a shelter from, from the elements. Oh, here I would again be tempted the, to complicate. If there is something, and it's a paradox, here I find mysteries, not only Chomsky. Yeah. From the very beginning, even when they were starving and so on, humanity had a weird need to make, under quotation marks, irrational sacrifices. You mm. almost don't have enough of meat, but you have to destroy as an offering to God a little bit of it and so on and mm -hmm. so on. Uh -huh. Not only. Not, and uh, this always fascinated me uh, and... Uh, there are even ridiculous examples like, I think this is modern theology. Do you know a little bit of, it's horrible, the history of communist Albania after World War II and Verkhoja? Mm. You know that Did you obsessed by security? Mm. And you know that in a country of, I think, less than two million people, in a decade or so, as part of this obsession that Albania will be attacked, he, they built the Albanians... 400,000 small bunkers. It was clearly a sacrificial gesture. Yeah, but I kind of feel like but we have we have something similar under capitalism, right? We have, uh, I mean, what we sacrifice ourselves to is the value that we're creating that's completely abstract and that mediates our life, and 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 I I feel as though that yeah, we could yeah. we can Although, see. You know, my problem here is, and I claim even Marx here is ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Okay, I agree, but never forget that for Marx, the only way to freedom, actual freedom, what he called, goes through capitalism. Right. That Marx was 
always ambiguous towards capitalism. At the same time, he celebrated capitalism as this dissolution of all old patriarchal links and so on and so on. So for Marx, this, uh, <coughs> how do I call it? This, uh, the fact that, I put it like this, the fact that for Marx in capitalism, production doesn't serve the needs of real people, but mm-hmm. its own capital's reproduction. For Marx, this is already an inverted form of freedom, because as Marx says in communism, or whatever, you, however you imagine it, uh, production will not serve the needs of the people, but will be a, a self-goal, something, a, a, an affirmative process, and so on and so on. Right. So let's not make this faithful, pragmatic step and claim we need production which serves the needs of the real people. On right. the other hand... I, what are the needs of the real people? Here I buy a little bit of psychoanalysis and so on. Don't the whole capitalism relies on the structure of envy? It's not just what we have and need. It's how what we have is overdetermined by what others have, we want what others want, and so on and so on. That's why my good friend who is a Marxist, Frederick Jameson, said that if we even imagine a post-capitalist order, the biggest problem there will be envy. Okay, but... Uh, well, let's, let's, I think you're go. not wrong, but I think that, that we can the kind of envy that we would experience in a post-capitalist world would be the kind of envy that you experience maybe between academics and a university campus, which would mean be, be vicious but not, not deadly, and that there would be the kind of envy that you find amongst free people. Um, and like the for me, the what Marx points to, the way I interpret Marx, yeah. and partly through you, by the way, is that yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, that what we're looking for is to take responsibility for the mechanism that mediates our productive life, and that not that we're going to find one that's naturally there for us already, not that we yeah, yeah, are going to yeah, know yeah. what the need, yeah, yeah. What, what we need already, but just that we're going to be able to be free to experiment with another mediating force in the world. And, you know, you do have to go through capitalism to get there because that's what's liberated us from previous autocratic or monarchical powers so that we can work together uh, as free people. But the, but um, we're not going to find anything waiting for us where, you know, it's just naturally. No, I agree, but I would nonetheless be a little bit more pessimist and claim that, you know, there are serious problems here how to imagine this new mode. Even with Marx, you often find in many famous passages in late Marx, in Grundrisse and Capital, what I'm tempted to call this technocratic uh, temptation, that communism will be a self-transparent society where some collective reason will perfectly, in a transparent way, regulate our exchange with nature and so on and so on. What shocks me is that read uh, the, the, that subchapter from Capital Volume 1 on fetishism and its mysteries, yeah. whatever. When Marx, very strangely, enumerating different modes of production, begins with Robinson, one guy along, okay, let's forget about the fact that it's strangely ignored by Marx that Robinson was not alone. He had a servant <laughs> right. on that island. But, and then at the end, Marx says, let's try to imagine. He means basically a communist society. And he said, we are back at Robinson. Only 
instead of one person, we have the collective mind. I doubt that this is possible. Yeah. I believe in, let's call it, constitutive opacity of the social space. That's the lesson well, of Well, I just think that what we have to do is recognize, was it, you know, the hope is not to... You know, maybe I do disagree with Marx on that point that you just raised, but the hope is to recognize our own responsibility for creating the gap that you talk about, for creating whatever the kind of unreal thing is that's mediating our lives. I wrote I wrote a book, a novel, where I tried to figure this out, and I decided that uh, rather than productive work what would in in labor time what would uh, yeah. the uh, I had an AI impose on the world that. Um, Video, that everyone would play video games and what would decide where things went was what video games were most popular. And well, that's like, a wonderful vision. Just, uh, just, uh, just my evil imagination. Uh, well, it was a dystopian how, novel. How will the space of video games be regulated? By a company who... By, a, by, a, by an AI that's trying to understand itself. And it it's comes across as a dystopian novel. It was my attempt to overcome capitalism, yeah, and every single reviewer said here. Yes. thought it was because, dystopian. No, my problem with AI, artificial intelligence, it's not that it's perfect, it could control us, but that it can get in its own contradictions, it can get self-contradictory, it can be inconsistent, and so on. Right. I don't believe in a, some perfect artificial intelligence, which will be a threat to us. I think artificial intelligence will be also inconsistent, confused, and so on. Right. I just think we can be inconsistent in a, in a better, more open and, and free way and where people don't start. Okay, but would you then make the next step, which is for some leftists very problematic? Yeah. What if I say that the lesson of all this is that we need a certain degree of alienation. Of course, not in the Marxist sense of exploitation and so right. on, but in the simple sense of intersubjective distance, non-transparency, and so on and so on. And I would even... Listen, you indoctrinated me. I completely agree with you on that. Yeah, <laughs> I even would have uh, follow your lines here and in the sense of... Uh, uh, it's horrible when I say this. I was even a couple of times interrupted by booing. But when I said, I don't want to live in a society where every afternoon I have to sit in meetings and determine how we organize health, education, right. and so on. Yeah. I want some relatively efficient, anonymous, collective apparatus, state on the apparatuses or not, which take care of this. And I would say, following you, if I got you correctly, mm. that... Uh, that that uh, we should imagine an alienation in this elementary sense, life is not simply self-transparent and so on, which can be absolutely different from capitalist alienation. Right. The big enigma for me, it may sound very ironic today, is to imagine a different good alienation. Yeah, that's how I'm with you on that. But I just think that we have to start by understanding the one we have, and that is yeah, one absolutely. based on capitalist exploitation. But here, again, yeah. my fascination with Marx is that, you know, Marx, as I again and again repeated, Marx is not, this is where I find the full actuality of Marx. Marx is not simply saying, we live in a phantasmagorical uh, universe of capitalist illusions. We need to turn to reality. No, Marx was well aware that the true fantasies 
theological mysteries that control us are part of our social reality. So Marx didn't say we have to step out of illusions into social reality. No. Again, the way I read Marx, I always repeat this. Fetishism is not in our false consciousness. Fetishism is in our social practice. An average bourgeois subject thinks commodity is a simple thing, we exchange things, money gives a great value, and then Marx says literally, I quoted this passage tens of times, that uh, a commodity appears something obvious, simple. You need very profound analysis to see what Marx ironically refers to as the theological dimension right. of it. Right. So Marx is not saying we should step out of these illusions into some kind of naive, transparent reality, and so on and so on. Yeah. I think that this is a vulgar reading so of Marx. I, I think we've arrived at a point that I want to get to, which is trying to explain the attacks on you based on what the aims of the left are currently and why your message and what you say sometimes a very more and more recent you know recently seems to fall on deaf ears or on people who are intentionally misinterpreting you and i think it has to do with a desire to make their politics already fit into the world as it is and also make it into a kind of return to a state of nature those two things aren't as opposed as you might, you know, yeah. as it might appear. No, no, I, 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 I deeply, I deeply agree with you here. But I may be even more, even more, even more of a pessimist. For example, let's take feminism, Me Too, and so on and so on. Yeah, I simply don't get it. How is it possible for me to be so often attacked for uh, uh, anti-feminism and so on and so on? What I see in the predominant mode of political correctness and me too, it's not what some libertarian critics are reproaching it for, that it's too uh, that it's too radical. No, it's really not radical enough. It doesn't even mention, it ignores the true horrors of exploitation of women and so on and so on. My big obsession is not you are a movie star and uh, you have to sleep with a producer to get the role, these usual stories. You know, who is my ideal here? You know the actress uh, Kirsten Stewart? Yes. She gave recently, I think, to the Vogue Vogue magazine a nice interview where she made the same point. She said, forget about these aspiring movie stars. Just make a step back. Go to any studio. All those script girls, secretaries, makeup girls, and so on. They are massively exploded, and it's sexual, and it's part of their daily life. We don't even mention this, or my other big example. Uh, Why is me too so obsessed with this, what I call, one-night stand problems? You know, did you misuse the girl if you lied to her when when you... flirted with her, whatever. Mm. What about the true misery of hundreds of millions of women? Let's say you are in mid-30s. You have two children, you depend financially on your husband. Your husband, maybe, it's not even beating you. He is not rude towards you. But he starts to ignore you, and there is no way out for you. Where can you go? You know, that's for me true, true despair. I mean, this is what has to be addressed. This massive misery poverty, which you don't find many things in the media. But the last thing that I want to emphasize here is my Freudian and Hegelian lesson 
I don't share this, I call it me too optimism, that if we get rid of, and then the enemy can be male chauvinism, heterosexual logic, and so on, if we just get rid of this force of oppression, we will get free sexual life, fully enjoying ourselves. No, sorry. I think we should learn something from Freud. Sexuality is inherently contradictory, self-destructive, and so on, and so on. Yeah. And we have to admit this and to learn to deal with it in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I I don't even want uh, this uh, free, perfect sex because it would become it once you try to imagine it it becomes flat and boring it's the fact that you it's, know what it becomes i read another feminist there are many intelligent feminists i admire them much yeah. more than men one of them says i forgot who something wonderful that if you follow this politically correct you know consensual sex all the stuff this politically correct instructions the image of good sex that you get it gets uh, it gets uh, Uncannily close to sadomasochist contact. <laughs> That's right. the model. That <laughs> right, right. Yeah, remains. yeah, yeah. You know, because, for example, when I criticized uh, this logic of consent, I was attacked for, ah, so we can rape women and it, consent doesn't matter. No, my point is not consent doesn't matter. Of course, I am for consent. Right. But my point is consent doesn't. My God, if there is a thing that we learned from Marx, is that. The bourgeois exchange exploitation is also, by definition, the free consent. Right. Consent is not enough. You can still have coercion, domination, even in the form of consent. And right. this goes especially for sexuality, with all its provocations, ambiguities. Uh, you say yes, then you are afraid of it. You want to withdraw. Or you say no. Everything is possible in sexuality. Or you say no, but it's meant as a provocation for further seduction and so on and so right. on. Let's admit this incredible ambiguity, gray zone complexity of sexuality. Let's yeah. not play the game. Sexuality is in itself a domain of pure joy, and then comes the, the evil uh, patriarchal ideology. Right. I feel like what happened is that we had this theoretical conversation, and then we had this political conversation, and they almost met, they almost connected, but not quite. But they know? do connect. I deeply agree with you, yeah. because, you know, and here I am, I wouldn't say an optimist, but a partisan of the opinion that we live in a very interesting era, where abstract questions about what is subjectivity, agency, sexual identity, and so on, are at the same time part of our everyday political, social problems. That's why I like so much the debate, and this may surprise you or some of our listeners, how often I get positive signals from, I know many of them, from LGBT plus women, especially again and again after a talk, I get approached by them and they told me they especially like this idea of mine, which is not mine. I took it from an Australian feminist, uh, LGBT, sorry, not LGBT. You know, this idea that LGBT plus, that this plus is a positive entity in itself, which defines subjectivity. You know how many authentic LGBT authentic for me mm. subjects accept this fully and this is this is uh, this is what gives me hope isn't it wonderful when a very concrete debate lgbt plus rights which can be then very empirical uh, 
separate toilets or whatever you want, all of a sudden, in a unique short circuit, brings us to the mega-theoretical, mega-philosophical problem of what is subjectivity, agency, and so on and so on. Well, uh, you know, here's my hope, uh, Slavoj, and I think we're maybe wrapping it up here, but uh, one day after the revolution, uh, uh, we can, you know, have a drink in Siberia together. Absolutely. And even if it's gulag, we will enjoy it there. Nice hot tea and so on. But seriously, it's very good that you mentioned revolution, because you know what I think? That, and Alain Badiou gave me this idea. No, what's happening today, it's not like before... World War Two. It's more unfortunately before World War One. Yeah. The, the second half of nineteenth century was like our era the last sixty years. It was an era of unprecedented progress, women's vote, trade unions, retirement and so on. And then something happened unimaginably. First World War. And that's my answer to those who claim, oh, uh, communists or fascists, they are the same, they screwed it up. No, if you look at the history of 20th century, you know that First World War was the mega catastrophe. Millions, it was such a shock for, and what I am afraid is that now our epoch is in a similar way approaching some, I don't know how it will look, catastrophe. We have full reasons to be like moderately, not to lose nerves, but to be, if I may use the stupid terms, to adopt the stance of rational, reasonable panic. Okay, this is it. This is my last question. I, 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 I remembered something that I had wanted to bring up at the beginning and didn't, which is last night before, to get ready to talk to you, I, I, I watched a video of you from 10 years ago. You're on a, a, a pretty interesting program where you're surrounded by television sets. I think it was a Swedish program, but um, well, it was uh, Dutch. It was Netherlands Dutch. Yes, yeah, yeah, I know yeah, it's yeah, 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 yeah. I hated it because I don't. It was too much of a TV show and so on. Yeah, but, yeah. But there was interesting nonetheless because there was you. You made at one point which at the time was very important to make in 2009, mm-hmm. which was that um, when we talk about the financial crisis, we tend to mm-hmm. talk about. Uh, bad bankers, or we tend to talk about greed, or the loss of values, mm. or psychological issues, mm. and we don't talk about this, the way capitalism itself has and its structure has set up the the crisis, and is is going to continue to set up these sorts of crises. And if you know, if we want Absolutely, to address, but if I may conclude with another provocation, yeah, that's also where I would shift the accent. What I mean, what disturbs me, although, I'm again, Trump is a disgusting entity, but I don't like this focus on impeach Trump. The problem today, if we learned something through uh, Snowden, WikiLeaks, and so on, is that the problem is not individuals who are corrupted. The problem is the evil manipulation, domination, inscribed into the very functioning of our institutions. So even if you don't have a corrupted guy, you may have sincere patriots and so on, but still horrors will happen. You know, I don't like this false personalization. You see Trump is a corrupted guy. No, it's false. The, The evil, evil alienation, domination, is inscribed into the very functioning of our institutions. That's why, to return to you, something like 
revolution, a radical change of institutions themselves will have to happen. Do you think that the left, the, the radical left, the left that's supposed to still care about something like a revolution, just failed no, to hold no. on to? My, my sad idea is that many of them that I've met, that secretly, intimately, they don't really believe in it. They themselves, they, they are the ultimate beautiful souls. It's very easy today to have this position of, uh, uh, no, all these are compromises, who is Bernie Sanders, a moderate social democrat, this is not enough, and so on and so on. Yeah. But the fact that this means you just sit back and, and comfortably await the big revolutionary event, which you even secretly hope it will not happen. That's why I, with all my radicality, blah, blah, I was all. I think the, I was always also, in some sense, very pragmatic. Whenever something is moving, Syriza at the beginning, uh, Morales. Uh, I was even c- connected with Linera was my ideal. Morales, uh, Bernie Sanders, and so on. We have to join the ranks when we see a potential of some. Change, even if it appears naive and so on and so on. Don't you we think don't we have to have do that? Right to, uh, sorry? And don't you think we have to do that critically? Though we have to do that, you of know. Of course, yeah. but we have to do it. Yeah. But we don't, we shouldn't be afraid to dirty our hands, not with crimes, but with concrete engagements, which even may appear naive and so on, but they are necessary because I believe that, of course, you know what uh, I think Orwell, whom I otherwise don't like too much, mm. he said at some point that uh, all revolutions fail, but they don't fail in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think this is important. Let's imagine today, I'm worried, or today, next week, Corby, the ele- uh, elections in England. I think that Corbyn cannot win. But if it will win, probably there will be mega troubles, capital will escape and so on and so on. But there is no other way than to go through all this. My spies in London are more optimistic. They say he has like a 50% chance of getting a minority government, you know, not... Okay, but what will happen then? I spoke with my friends there who are close to Corbyn, uh, sorry, to Corbyn, and then they told me, but wait a minute, what will you do with capital already getting ready to, to... to 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 flow no, out. No, they, they'll have to well, be. He'll be smashed unless there's a popular movement of, in the streets. You know, unless there's people who are willing to fight for helping his agenda get through. Unless he can organize. I hear problems for him again because first, what they would have. It will be a matter of their survival to control the free flow of capital. Mm. That's what ha- will have to be done. You yeah. Know? And how to do it with all the opposition? I, you know, what's my ultimate paranoia? You know that true conservatives, like every twenty, thirty years, something close to radical left taking power, and then one year fiasco, so that as they always tell me, the people will learn the lesson. Then you know, <laughs> you will have peace for the next thirty years. That's what that was. I was already afraid in. Of in the case of Greece, you know what was my biggest shock there? I what? spoke with Rufakis, maybe you know the story, and he told me that when he pulled his great ace card to when talking with Schäuble, the German finance minister, okay, then we'll do Brexit, you know. Right. Schäuble's reaction was nice. 
perfect. Okay, do it. We can give you 30 billion the credit to do it and so on. The, the real conservatives in Europe, they wanted Grexit and they already had precise plans. Grexit, hunger in Greece, chaos. Okay, people will be taught. Right, I know, I know, I know. At the time I was saying that I, I was not for a, a Greek exit from the EU just because I thought it would actually end up making the conditions in, in Greece worse and that, you know, the, what I thought the only possibility would be is to organize uh, amongst the, the, the losers in Europe, you know, the small nations that were struggling and, and hurt the most by the crisis yeah. and they were in debt, that they had to organize together. They couldn't yes, just do it. I agree with you, but that's crucial. This is also the conclusion of Varoufakis when I talked with him, that the lesson of the failure of Syriza is, one, there is still a dream among some leftists in Europe that since capitalism is international, a strong nation state gives you enough autonomy, blah, blah, blah. I doubt this. We need, left also has to be, in some sense, at least internationalist. Yeah. We cannot play nation state against uh, global capital. Yeah, I agree. Well, listen, it was very nice of you to, to be on the on the channel today. And yeah, but to, we talked too much, so please, I need your comradely censorship. Cut short all stupidities and so on.